New York City is made up of several islands. The big ones, like Manhattan and Staten Island, need no introduction. Even some of the smaller ones have significant name recognition, like Coney Island and City Island. But how much do you know about the islands not accessible to the general public, like Hart Island, which is home to the city's Potter's Field? I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up, we'll talk with Melinda Hunt, whose organization works to uncover the stories of those buried on Hart Island. There are well over a million people buried on Hart Island. But first, it was once the site of an infectious disease hospital and home to Typhoid Mary. Today, North Brother Island in the East River sits abandoned with a collection of crumbling buildings overrun by nature. The island is off limits to the public, but photographer Christopher Payne was able to spend years documenting the place. The result was a book titled North Brother Island, The Last Unknown Place in New York City. Christopher joins me now in the studio. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So when was the first time you stepped foot on North Brother Island? Well, I was working on a photography project. Uh, It was the Metropolitan Waterfront Alliance, and they had hired me to document structures and sites along the East River as part of an exhibit, and this would be this would have been in 2004. Mm-hmm. And one of those sites was North Brother Island. And I remember being on this big boat that we used to travel up and down the East River, and we came to North Brother Island, and we couldn't dock. And they told me about it, and I could see it, and we were literally 50 feet away. We were at the dock, but because the island has been abandoned for so long, mm-hmm. those structures have deteriorated. So all we could do was just look at it that day. See it from afar. See it from afar. Yeah. As they say, close, you know, close and yet so far away. Mm -hmm. And after the exhibit was over, I vowed to return and I got in touch with the city parks department, which owns the island or at least maintains it. And over, I would say a course of several years back and forth, I finally got access And uh, the first time I think I went out with them would have been in 2006, and that was on a police boat because the Parks Department at that time, I don't know if this is still the case, but they they don't have their own transportation. So the visits were coordinated with when we could get one of the police harbor boats. And I realized, well, that's not going to work for me. So I, I I had bigger plans in mind. I wanted to do more complete documentation, a really a thorough survey, photographic survey of the island. And so I pitched this idea to them that uh, they agreed to, and that was that if I supplied the transportation, they would allow me unlimited access. So how did you go about acquiring the transportation to get over there? Well, I had a friend with a boat who owns a marina. He's an old friend, and he sort of does the same He's interested in the same things I am, uh, old structures, industry, that kind of thing. And he agreed to be our captain. And so from, I would say, 2008 up until just before the book was published in 2013, he would ferry us across. We'd go every twice a year, maybe sometimes four times a year over a course of two days, two, three days. You would leave from where? We would leave from, we often left from North, uh, I'm sorry, Barreto Point Park. In the Bronx. Yes. It's a park that's recently been 
restored, and they have a great dock and uh, and boat launch. And so we would meet up there in the morning, early morning. We'd meet the parks people. Whoever wanted to come out that day, they would do remedial work on the island, whatever they had to do. And Todd would ferry us back and forth in his little boat. And the boat often changed depending on what Todd had on hand at the marina, what he could put on top of his van or, or in tow. And I remember one time our, our boat did spring a leak. Hmm. And at the end of the day, being in the South Bronx, there are a lot of salvage places. And so just a block away, we were able to get $63 for the for the boat because it was aluminum. It was an aluminum salvage There's an only a New York story, only I think. Only in New York. <laughs> exactly. So that went on for a period, you know, from, from 2008 to 2013 or so. We made many visits, different seasons, but we were technically not allowed to be on the island between... Oh, I would say uh, basically the spring. The spring was when the migratory birds were nesting, and so that was off limits. What kinds of birds do migrate to North Brother? Well, at one time, it was the black-crowned night heron, which is a migratory bird, and they would, they would nest on the island. And, but I, we, we never saw any traces of them, and I was told by the parks people that you know the birds come and go depending on their, the seasons or whatever. So we never saw any traces of those birds, but it was still a, a time that you just didn't want to be there in case they were there. And uh, we didn't see any other traces of animals either because there was no food on the island. How much did you know about the history of the island when you first saw it during that visit when you were out there doing another project? Not much at all. It was something that it, it can easily be summed up as, as an island that was used as a you know tuberculosis or quarantine hospital, and, and you immediately think of Ellis Island, and that's kind of enough to, to spark your imagination. Mm-hmm. It was the home of Typhoid Mary. It was. It was. It was Typhoid Mary. The, the, the wreck of the General Slocum was there. And, uh, but the, no traces of, those, of, that, of her or that incident remain. And, and that's, that's the challenge of, of taking on a photography project like that because began, as I began to unearth more and more historical documentation, of which there really wasn't that much, you realize that the way the island looked back then is vastly different from what it is now. And so you have to temper your expectations. And while being on the island is an incredible experience, you don't feel like you're in New York City. You feel like you're a world away. Can you hear New York City, though, on the island? Yes, you can. And that, that's actually an amazing question because most of my time was spent walking around the island and being in these abandoned buildings. And there's no one on the island. There, there are no ghosts. There's, no, there's not a lot of wildlife, maybe some birds, but th- there's just not a lot of, of movement on the island other than the winds and the boats. And yet, sound carries across the water very well. And I remember being in one of these buildings, and they can get a little spooky, and I heard the Mr. Softy <laughs> as if it was right outside. What an iconic New York City sound coming there. Unbelievable. It, it literally sounded as if it was, I looked out the window thinking it's the ghost of Mr. Softy. <laughs> so what were the purposes of these buildings? There are abandoned buildings there, but what purpose did they serve? Well, North Brother Island came into prominence in the 1880s 
when public health issues of an expanding population regularly made health uh, uh, headlines. You can imagine the city's growing. There are lots of diseases. There's fear of these diseases. And there really wasn't a lot medically that they could do back then. So the answer was just to, to quarantine people and to use all of these islands uh, as buffers against these contagions. And, and North Brother Island, like Ellis Island and I think Hart Island, and you know you, you see this in all, all sorts of cities. They have an island like this up in Boston. Um, named Long Island. And and it was just a convenient place to put people. And it, it's funny that back then, the periphery of the city and these islands were not desirable places to be. And now we see an, a complete inverse. And so North Brother Island started out as a, as a quarantine hospital. And it was used for that purpose from the 1880s until the 1930s. And, and when I say quarantine hospital you have to imagine that there weren't really the modern hospitals of today. These were, these buildings were, I would say dormitories. And then during the war, it was mothballed uh, just as it was, as the construction of the Island had sort of reached its peak and they were building this, this large tuberculosis pavilion. But with the war and other medical advances, North Brother Island was, was kind of obsolete by that point. After the war, it was repurposed as housing for returning GIs and their families because even back then there was a shortage of housing. And so from 1946 to 1951, it became this community of GIs and their families, and it was described to me as a a very idyllic community, a great place to, to raise the kids. They could grow their own vegetables, and the veterans would commute to the city downtown during the day. And I... As I was working on this project and and showing my photos, that kind of thing, an old family friend of ours, a good friend of my family's, reached out to us and said, I lived there as a child. Wow. And wow. Her, her father was was uh, was a veteran, and I called him up, and he was like 90. Huh. And he had the – his – he sounded like a sailor. I mean, he was, you know <laughs> – he was uh, had quite a vocabulary, a rich, evocative vocabulary. But he he described how how great it was to live there. But he also complained about the commute downtown, and having to take the ferry from North Brother to One Hundred Thirty Fourth Street in the Bronx, and then you had to walk to I, I guess it's the Number Six train. So even back then, there was a shortage of housing, mm-hmm. and there were people complaining about the commute, and. When the book was published, I was approached by another couple, Bernice and Les Margulis, and they had lived on the island as newlyweds. And they came to my book opening, the signing. They looked great. And they what touched me the most was that they said how much their time on that island had really helped solidify their marriage. That's fantastic. And she showed me photos of them on the island, and she was a young woman, probably 20 years old. And it's one thing to see historical photos where you don't have a connection mm-hmm. and they're, they're more like artifacts. And yet when someone shows you a personal snapshot, it's all the more meaningful and it makes that place come alive. And so when I was shooting, I, w- I would always have these photos in my head trying to kind of recreate that view, you know, before and after. But it, they were just sort of, um, you know, ways to sort of ground myself in that history. And so anyway, so the island was used for housing, 
until 1951. And then in 1952, it was again repurposed for, as a juvenile drug treatment center. I think one of the first of its kind in the country for, for addicts, young addicts. And that was the last use of the island until 1963. It was closed amid allegations of abuse and corruption, typical of any state welfare agency or institution. And it closed just overnight and they shut down the electricity and the water and they walked in and they walked away. And then it just decayed. And that's it, what you captured, that decay. Yes, yes. And I, I would have loved to have seen it right at the end when it was still in use. But, but often I get to a place and it's 50 years later. Just how dilapidated are the buildings over there? Some of the structures, there are, I think, maybe 26 structures in various states of decay, which are consumed by vegetation for most of the year. Some of them are in better shape than others. Some of them you don't even know what they were used for. They've collapsed in on themselves. They've been consumed by this vegetation. Others, the core of the structure is sound, but the interiors, by and large, have been reduced to shades of gray and brown. The plaster has fallen off the walls. You know, maybe the ceilings have caved in. So it's difficult to tell what they were used for. And in the case of the tuberculosis pavilion, which is a very beautiful art, art modern structure from 1943, it was never used as such because by the time they finished building it, there wasn't a need for a tuberculosis pavilion. So that was actually used for as, as a dormitory for the veterans and later for the, the, uh, the kids. How safe was it for you to be walking around these dilapidated buildings? I knew where to go, but there were holes in the floor and the stairs were missing. It, it was You just have to be careful. And what was actually more uh, dangerous than the buildings were the grounds themselves because there were like uh, underground uh, channels for utility lines. And those were just some of those uh, access points where it would be just be left open and, and the vines had grown over them. So you could fall into those and not even know if you didn't know where you were, where, where you were stepping. What struck you most about what you found there or what you saw inside these buildings? I think being, being inside the buildings was a lot like being inside any other old abandoned building. It's, it's evocative, it's spooky, but by and large, after 50 years, these kinds of structures all look the same unless you find something that's very specific to that place. Like books. Like books. I found a room full of books, which speaks about how we value books because those are the only artifacts that were left on the island. And there were a floor full of, of, of books. It, it was probably a library of sorts. I also found some graffiti on the walls. And that was interesting because these were the names of the kids who had, who had been there as, as drug addicts. And one of them had drawn a, a syringe. Another one had written his the intersection of his neighborhood where he lived. And it, and it was just something right out of West Side Story because no one would would claim their neighborhood with such pride the way they might have back then where like a city block was indicative of where you lived. But there really wasn't a whole lot to be found inside the structures. And what I loved more than anything was walking around the grounds because the landscape would change 
dramatically from season to season. So in the winter, you could actually walk around and, and get your a feel for what was what and, and, and how the buildings related to each other and a sense of the campus. But in the summer, it was virtually impenetrable, and you had to kind of know where to go where there wasn't poison ivy. And some of the buildings were barely visible. Um, and so I, I liked seeing that back and forth, the rhythm of, of the of the, the landscape and the seasons, it was a way to experience it that you can't, it, we're, we're kind of immune to in New York. The seasons pass without really us knowing when they start or stop. We don't see the highs and the lows. You know, we complain about the rain or a little bit of snow, but we don't feel it as if we're living out in the country. And North Brother Island is kind of like this little encapsulation of that. It has its own ecosystem and when you're there, you really forget that you're in New York City. And so I enjoyed that the most of all, and just the, the juxtaposition of that lush landscape with these ruinous buildings. Would you hope that the island would someday be open to the public like Governor's Island is today? I hope so. I think Governor's Island's a great balance of, of parkland and historic structures, and they haven't turned it into condominiums or a casino. It, it, when you're there, it is evocative of what it was. And North Brother is even more so if you go there now. And yet, w- when you're there now, it was never intended to be a, a ruined landscape, a-, a forest. There's some balance to be struck, but I think it's important to maintain the buildings, some of them as they are, as ruins, so you get a sense of that history and, and how quickly things change. You know, in, in one or two generations, an island like North Brother Island is, is completely forgotten by the general public. Christopher Payne, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That was photographer Christopher Payne. He's online at chrispaynephoto.com. Now let's turn our attention to another mysterious island in New York City, Hart Island, an uninhabited strip of land off the coast of the Bronx in Long Island Sound. It's home to what's said to be the largest public cemetery in the world. Visual artist Melinda Hunt has made it her mission to uncover the stories of those buried in Hart Island. She's the founding director of the Hart Island Project. Melinda joins me now in the studio. Melinda, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So what's the history of Hart Island? Hart Island sort of came into public use during the American Civil War. It was a training ground for Union soldiers and uh, the United States Colored Troops, two regiments of the United States Colored Troops trained there as well. And they were involved in, you know, the end of the war, Appomattox and whatnot. And um, Hart Island in 1865 became a... Confederate prisoner of war camp. There were 3,412 Confederate soldiers who were kept there. Some of them died. And also the first burials on Hart Island were Union soldiers who died in the course of training. So it's quite important to our history. Uh, it's a large Civil War site. And then... Are there remnants there? No, not at this time. The city purchased Hart Island in 1868 for the purpose of setting up a boys' reformatory. And there was a reformatory. There was also a branch workhouse from Blackwell's Penitentiary and the Potter's Field, uh, which is really officially named City Cemetery. When did it start to be used as a Potter's Field for those without the means for burial or those who have been unidentified? Well, it 
began to be used as city cemetery in 1869. And in fact, it's labeled the indigent burial ground, but it's really for burials where a family has not come forward and hired a private funeral director or if the body is unidentified. And there are actually very few unidentified burials. Most of the burials are consented burials. And for whatever reason, the family may or may not want to hire a funeral director. So on Heart Island, there is no funeral director. The city offers a mortuary service, which is free. It's the largest natural burial ground in the United States, and it's the only natural burial ground in New York City. There are well over a million people buried on Heart Island, so it's the second largest cemetery in the United States. And they're buried in mass unmarked graves? These are common graves, and they are marked by numbers, and currently the city uses GPS to keep track of the burials. Now, the burial process itself comes out of the Civil War in that they had to come up with a way of burying soldiers on battlefields and then disinterring them and returning the bodies to families. So New York City actually does that as well. Um, They have a system of ledgers, and the graves are laid out in a grid so that the medical examiner can call back a body for re-identification or to release the, the body to a private funeral director. So this is actually a very important service to people because people in New York City often have relatives outside of the city, and it may take some time for the family to learn of the death and to get organized and hire a funeral director. Now, under New York state law, people only have, what, 48 hours to identify a body for burial? No, generally speaking, um, the city will hold a body for two weeks. They're not required to hold it for more than a week so that in the event of some kind of catastrophic, you know, epidemic or something that they needed, they didn't, they ran out of room at the medical examiner, then they they could release the body for burial and disinter later on. But generally speaking, the medical examiner will try to find, and the police will try to find a family member, and they'll hold the body for a month or so. And the people who have burial permits early generally have a family member who's present at the death, and people do choose burial at City Cemetery. And I think going forward that it is a real option if you don't want to be embalmed, and if you don't want to be cremated. In fact, the New York City park system, the foundation of the park system is public burials. The um, dead of previous generation saved space for our public parks. And so, in a sense, these cemeteries are very important green space, and Hart Island is the largest city cemetery. Because it's 131 acres, New York City has never run out of burial space um, because common graves can be recycled after 25 years, after the body is fully decomposed. So in fact, this is a tremendous asset to the city of New York 
that um, we're not running out of burial space, whereas the private cemeteries cannot reuse grave sites, and they are running short of burial space. City cemetery will never run out of space. So are they burying people in caskets, or are they just burying the bodies? The bodies are buried in plain pine boxes, and as I said, they're laid out in a grid so that um, they know where every body is. The city does keep track of each body. But after 25 years, there's no longer an obligation to keep that grave intact. And generally speaking, the city doesn't go back more than 10 years to disinter a body. But they can go back 20, 25 years, and I've actually seen that. And surprisingly, these boxes are intact. I mean, it's skeletal remains by by 20 years, but the box is fully intact. Which city department oversees Hart Island? Well, when the city purchased Hart Island, it was the agency in charge was the Department of Correction and Charities. And those two agencies split with consolidation in 1995. And the, But both agencies remained on the administrative code for Hart Island. And what happened was the Department of Welfare left Hart Island in the 1950s, and then the Department of Correction closed the prison there in 1966, and they tried to transfer jurisdiction to the Parks Department. And the Parks Department for 50 years has refused to accept jurisdiction because it's an active cemetery and the Parks Department doesn't feel that they can manage the burials. But in fact, all of the national cemeteries are managed by the National Park Service. And so there is, especially since Hart Island is connected to Gettysburg and these national cemeteries in terms of soldiers being buried on the battlefield in their regiments, there is a precedent for the Parks Department managing city burials. I understand that inmates are used to dig the graves on Hart Island? Prison labor is is used to conduct the burials. Obviously, at this point, they use uh, a backhoe and there's, you know, mechanized equipment for digging the graves. But the inmates are volunteers and they're not felons. These are young men between 18, well, it used to be 16 uh, and 30 years old, but as of I think last month, um, 16-year-olds no longer go to jail. So between 18 and 30, young men convicted of misdemeanors like turnstile jumping or graffiti, and they are volunteers for this service. If you know someone who is buried on Hart Island, can you go visit the site? As of 2015, with the settlement of a class action lawsuit, filed by the New York Civil Liberties Union, you can now, if you have a family member buried there, going all the way back to 1869, you can visit. Before that, a very hard thing to do, huh? Before July 2015, it was not clear that family members had a right to visit a grave. We petitioned the city in... 2012 to provide access to grave sites. And our argument was that in agreeing to a city burial, the family is not relinquishing their right to visit. They're just agreeing to a burial. But this is public property, and the public has a right to visit. So we're still hoping that 
the legislation to transfer to parks will go through so that residents of New York City can visit their cemetery. Now, what is the mission of the Heart Island Project? The mission of the Heart Island Project is to make Heart Island visible and accessible. And we're, we do this through creative projects and through working with the city council. We work with law firms to file FOIL requests for information, and we host an online database of over 65,000 burials from 1980 to present. The burials earlier than that are not intact, and so our database has an interactive map that shows you where those grave sites are. If you go to the map and you click on a grave site, it deconstructs that entire mass grave so you can see who's in it. And each person listed in a profile has a clock of anonymity assigned to them where if someone who knows them adds a story about that person, they stop their clock of anonymity and pull them back into history. And that's been very powerful because the search engines pick up every single name in our database. So people who have been looking for decades can type in a name and then all of a sudden they go to that profile, they learn of the date of death, and they learn of the burial location. And hopefully at some point they'll be able to visit a gravesite and use that application to tell stories on location. Melinda, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. Melinda Hunt is the founding director of the Heart Island Project. More information at heartisland.net. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Salas. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.